Hello and welcome back to the Dustcast, the podcast dedicated to exploring the ancient Hebraic context of our faith. Today the music is brought to you by Five Iron Frenzy, because if ancient Hebraic thought and modern American ska is not a match made in heaven, then I don't know what is. I want to look today at uh, why the Bible is so complicated and how we can perhaps understand a little bit about uh, interpretation based on the Jewish history of debate. When you look at the history of Western Christianity, especially over the past 500 years or so, it seems to indicate that disagreements and debates always lead to division. We have a way of delineating our groups based on really tightly defined beliefs, and we find that even minor deviations can lead to irreparable schisms. But this has largely not been so with Judaism, which seems to feel quite at home with disagreements and even heated debate. In fact, the Talmud itself, which rabbinic Jews take as authoritative, is largely a collection of different rabbinic opinions. You'll find in the Talmud a a topic, and then it goes on to say that Rabbi A says this, and Rabbi B says that, and Rabbi C says something different entirely. And yet, the Talmud overall is taken as authoritative. The Jewish perspective often seems to be that wisdom is found within the debate itself. I think you can illustrate this a little bit with an ancient story. Uh, There was a rabbi named Yohanan who loved to debate with his disciple Lachish. And then when Lachish died, Rabbi Yohanan was deeply grieved. So the other disciples decided to send him one of their best students to be his disciple. But when discussing the Torah with Rabbi Yohanan, the new disciple would always say, I know a saying in the Mishnah that defends your position. Exasperated, Rabbi Yohanan said, You are supposed to be like Lakish? With Lakish, whenever I said something, he had 24 difficulties in regard to the point, and I would have to come up with 24 solutions. And as a result, the subject became clear. However, when you simply agree with me, I learn nothing new and the subject does not become clear. Tradition holds that this frustration with this new disciple even drove Rabbi Yohanan to his own untimely death. I, on the other hand, have a largely Western philosophical mindset, and I really like to have the right answers. I often get impatient and want to get to the bottom line, because really, just knowing the truth is what's important after all, right? Like Sergeant Joe Friday, what we want are just the facts. And I think that when we read the Bible, we often bring the same mindset. But the trouble is that all too often God does not seem as cooperative as I would like him to be with just laying out the facts. One pretty simple example is Proverbs chapter 26, verse 4, which says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Okay, seems simple enough. Except then that God has the nerve to follow it up with verse 5, which says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So, should I answer a fool according to his folly, or not? I think the truth lies in the fact that discussions with fools are minefields, and both statements reflect a true facet of reality. It's not that one is sometimes true and sometimes not true, or that it's partially true. The Proverbs reflect truth, but one facet of a very complicated reality. And the wisdom comes in being able to simultaneously hold both of these seemingly incongruous Proverbs in mind at the same time, and then discerning the best reaction to the scenario uh, based on the particular circumstances within that dynamic tension of the two different Proverbs. 
Marvin Wilson writes in Our Father Abraham, the Hebrew knew that he did not have all of the answers. He refused to over-systematize or force harmonization on the enigmas of God's truth or the puzzles of the universe. The Hebrew mind was willing to accept the truths taught on both sides of the paradox. It recognized that mystery and apparent contradictions are often signs of the divine. And I think that as difficult as some proverbs can be to understand and apply, the example we just went through is, is really a relatively minor one. But the tradition of debate within Hebraic thought has much deeper currents when you look at major themes running through the Hebrew Bible, or what we know as the Old Testament. One of those major streams reflects the priestly attitude towards purity. There are even entire books like Leviticus that lay out in painstaking detail the extreme importance of holiness, cleanliness, separation from the Gentiles, and above all, the system of temple sacrifices. But then set against that stream runs the prophetic currents, with their emphasis on social justice. Hosea famously states the word of the Lord as, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. That's Hosea 6.6. 6. And then God seems to take it even one step further when speaking through Jeremiah, declaring, For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. That's Jeremiah 7.22. But that makes me want to say, what? That seems difficult to reconcile with, say, the entire book of Leviticus. It, It seems like God did talk to the children of Israel when he took them out of exile about burnt offerings. But I can almost see God and Jeremiah screaming out in utter frustration at the injustice and oppression and violence of the Israelites who still bring offerings to Yahweh at the temple. You can see some of that in earlier verses in Jeremiah chapter 7, like verses 5 and 6. And I I almost just see God throwing up his hands in exasperation at the scenario and just saying, you're missing the whole point. So which is it? Is it that purity and cleanliness and sacrifices are important? Or that God doesn't even talk about them at all and it's only mercy? Why couldn't God just give us one clear, even-handed, kind of straight-down-the-middle explanation? And when I look at the Bible... I find that the more that I've studied it, the less I think I understand. (laughs) The Bible is not univocal. And what I mean by that is it does not speak with one voice. And I know that may sound shocking, depending on your background and your perspective. I think in the conservative circles that many of us grew up in, to say something like the, the Bible does not speak with one voice is... Uh, heresy grounds for excommunication. Um, It is, after all, the voice of God, right? But I think the nature of inspiration and the way that God worked with the human authors is complicated. And if we're honest about what the Bible says, it's not that difficult to see that many voices and perspectives are represented across its pages. And so why? Why has God chosen to inspire Scripture that way? Why did God give us this collection of books and letters and poems? 
I think that perhaps we can't understand as fully if we're just spoon-fed simple bottom-line facts. If you think back on teachers that most impacted you, or lessons that have stuck with you the most clearly, it was probably when you were forced to think through things for yourself. I know that I used to mostly read books that I knew were by authors I already agreed with, and I read them in order to bolster my understanding of my own arguments. But that when I've really grown the most spiritually, it was when I was reading books and listening to lessons and podcasts by people that challenged me. When I really started branching out and reading from people that had different backgrounds and different perspectives and and frankly, even people with whom I still disagree on many points. To read through what they think or listen to a recorded lesson that they've given, even if I don't end up fully agreeing with their perspective, stretches me and causes me to grow in a much deeper way than when I just get the same simple message reinforced in the way that I've already heard it. And so if I think about those Old Testament currents, I don't think that I could know, I mean truly know in my heart and in my gut, how important purity is unless I hear it from an ancient Jewish priest. And I don't think I could know how passionately God feels about social justice unless I hear it screamed from the mouth of an angry prophet. And I suppose God could have written the Bible with just some dispassionate explanation right down the middle with a balanced view of exactly how he sees these two topics. But I don't, I don't know that that would have done justice to either perspective. Because I think God does value purity and he does value social justice. But unless we hear in human words and in our culture and in our language people passionately advocating for just one of those at a time, we don't fully understand them. I can remember in college a philosophy professor that uh, made us argue points that we didn't agree with. (laughs) He would assign us the opposite of our natural perspective when we had to make a a speech or participate in a debate. And uh, so, you know, it might be something like affirmative action and taking people that would naturally not resonate with the idea of affirmative action and making them argue for it. And when you are forced to do the research and take on that perspective and craft as tight an argument as you can for something, you grow to understand it in a way that you never would have understood it only seeing your side and only arguing for what you already believed. And when we look at the Bible, I don't think that we should expect the nature of God, the universe, and ultimate reality to be simple. Our minds can only hold a very few things in conscious thought at a time. And when you think about everything that the Bible is trying to express, not to mention the fact that the nature of God is utterly unexpressible in its essence, but if you think about all the other doctrines and theologies and ethics that the Bible is trying to express, I want you to imagine being in a giant room, like the biggest warehouse that you can imagine. And all of those ideas in the Bible are physical objects that just jam-packed, fill this enormous structure. And it's dark, and you're given a single flashlight. 
And the beam of that flashlight is like your conscious mind. That's all that you can perceive at a time. And when you shine the light on one thing, you necessarily plunge others into darkness. I think the Bible illuminates many aspects of God's nature and his plan for our world. And our task is to explore even those aspects that are difficult to see simultaneously. Athol Dickerson writes in the Gospel According to Moses, If I focus on Jesus as man, I miss Jesus as God. If I focus on Jesus as God, I miss Jesus as man. It's difficult to understand all of it at once, and I think sometimes the debate and the different perspectives, the different voices represented, are there to give us a better understanding of one aspect of something, and in that they reflect truth, and yet that's not all the truth that there is, and we have to then turn our attention to a different perspective, and only in the debate can we truly attain wisdom. I also think that the complexity of Scripture is perhaps God's way of saying that we have to own this. He's not going to do all of the work for us. God can lay out the answers to some questions for us, but eventually we're going to face something that Scripture doesn't address directly. And what if the Bible is not so much intended to give us all of the factual knowledge that we need, but rather to transform us into the kind of people that God wants us to be? If we want to be able to think more like God, it's going to take some hard work. We're going to have to wrestle with complexity. And I think wrestling with Scripture can be more like difficult physical training than a purely academic exercise of study. We can see a little bit of this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when Paul discusses divorce. He first quotes Jesus' instructions on divorce, which seem simple and universal when we read them in the gospel accounts. But then Paul deals with an issue that Jesus never addressed directly. A believer married to an unbeliever who may or may not want to divorce him. Paul thinks through the issue and gives advice, but he makes it clear that his commentary is not a direct quote from Jesus. He's had to work through it himself, and he models to us how to do the same. And so as I reflect on the Jewish worldview and the the Hebraic context of our faith, I do think it's a world that was much more comfortable with debate and with heated discussion, and that was able to handle that in a way that led to deeper wisdom rather than divisions. And so as I reflect on, on the potential applications of these ideas to our world today, There's really two things that stand out to me. First, I believe that we need to be more comfortable with debates within the church. Debate should not cause division. We don't have to split when we disagree. We can keep talking. But nor should the solution simply be to avoid difficult issues. The Bible does not shy away from debate. We need to embrace the ability to disagree, to discuss, and to grow from it. I think one of the key questions we have to ask is, you know, how can we do this practically? You know, what is the way for greater unity? It's a big 
big topic in ecumenical circles and discussions, and I don't have any easy answers. You know, that it, it's said so often, it's almost trite, the, the phrase of unity, not uniformity. But I do think that's true. We're not striving for uniformity because there is value in diversity of viewpoints and perspectives. And yet that unity is so difficult to obtain. One of the ways that we've approached it is unity in the essentials and grace in the non-essentials. But frankly, I don't think that that works either. I think that even to expect the church to arrive in this life at unity in the essentials is unrealistic. I think that we should strive for it. I think that truth is important enough that we should debate it and not just ignore it when somebody is, in our opinion, off base on an essential scriptural issue. We, we should discuss that and, and strive towards a deeper understanding and try to convince them of what we believe to be the biblical perspective. But to believe that we can only experience unity once we have that agreement on essentials is, I think, a pipe dream. And I don't think it's what the Bible calls us to. If you look at Paul, I, again, I'll go back to 1 Corinthians, which I think is a, just a great example of how to wrestle with a, a, a community that is deeply divided and, frankly, quite possibly falling apart at the time that Paul writes his letters. And so where does Paul draw the line? Does he draw the line at when a disagreement is so severe that a church needs to split and separate? And if you look at his letter, I think Paul deals with increasingly difficult and sort of core theological issues as he progresses. He's, he's working up to a crescendo. And he goes through all these issues, and you know he's not doing theology for theology's sake. Paul is very theological, but I think it's because he believes that theology matters. He, he's writing letters to people based on their needs and what they need to hear at the time. He's very pastoral, but he uses theology in his argument. And so he finally works up to chapter 15, which I think is really kind of the crux of the matter for Paul. And he gets to this topic where I think Paul is saying, you cannot be a Christian if you don't believe this. And that this of that chapter is resurrection. There are people in Corinth saying that there is no bodily resurrection. And Paul says, if there is no physical resurrection then we are to be pitied because we have hope only for this life and not even Christ would have been raised. This is core. This is essential to Paul. And yet look at how he treats the people that don't believe in the resurrection. He doesn't say, all right, I'm done with you. You're no longer Christians. He doesn't say, go over to some other street corner in Corinth and set up a second church, the, the church of the non-resurrection, because I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. No, rather he speaks to them as believers. He's still speaking to them as the community of the way of Jesus. And he's trying to correct them and tell them what he believes is the correct viewpoint. And he states it very strongly, but he doesn't cast them out. He doesn't say we're going to have to divide and create separate churches here, but he treats them as fellow brothers as he tries to correct their thinking. Okay, and then second, I think that we need to be more comfortable wrestling with the text ourselves. I grew up feeling like I shouldn't really ask questions that might imply I had a difficulty with my reading of the Bible. It is, after all, the Word of God. 
But I've come to believe that God is big enough to handle all of our questions, our doubts, and even our challenges. I truly believe that God would rather have us engage fully rather than suppress our questions about difficult issues. God is not offended when we question the Bible. And like Jacob, we might walk with a limp after we wrestle with God, but that limp might be just what we need. All right, thanks for joining me for another episode of The Dustcast. As always, you can find show notes at thedustcast.com. Look for other blog posts there as well. I recently put out a post asking for listener feedback on who you would like to hear from next. And I've already started reading a couple of new books and I've scheduled another interview based on your feedback. So I really do value your input. You can also find The Dustcast on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. You can subscribe on iTunes to automatically get future episodes. And if you like what you hear, leave me a rating or a review. Thanks a lot.